0: Hello, and welcome to this PrimeMed podcast titled Opioids and Opioid Use Disorder, A Case-Based Approach to Manage Pain During the Opioid Epidemic. I'm Dr. Danielle Hebert, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner in primary care, as well as an assistant professor and coordinator of the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Track in the Tan Chin Fen Graduate School of Nursing at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. While this episode is relevant to all primary care clinicians, it's part of a curriculum I've developed with PrimeMed and designed specifically to help nurse practitioners earn the pharmacology credits they need to maintain their licensure. Check out the other courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com forward Hebert. Thank you for joining me as we dive into the recent data regarding the growing opioid epidemic and what we, as primary care clinicians, can do to improve the care and safety of our patients. We'll begin with a brief review of the current evidence for managing controlled substances and then apply this information using case studies to address common patient scenarios in primary care. First, I want to just review some facts and data on the opioid epidemic. For me, having been in nursing for over 26 years, with 16 of those years as a nurse practitioner, I have witnessed the pendulum shift in healthcare's approach to pain management. From the implementation of pain as the fifth vital sign to the realization of the consequences of this action that when combined with other contributing factors has led us to the opioid epidemic. I know many of us are aware of the epidemic and are actively involved in strategies to rectify the situation, but I think it would be helpful for us to acknowledge some facts and data as we educate ourselves on the topic. The following information that I'm sharing with you is from the CDC website and is current as of September, 2023. From the year of 2020 to 2021, We saw an increase in drug overdose deaths of more than 16%, with approximately 107,000 overdose deaths occurring in 2021, which was six times the number that had occurred in 1999. More than 75% of those deaths involved an opioid. During that same year, the number of deaths due to opioids rose by more than 15%. Synthetic opioid-related deaths increased more than 22%, and deaths involving heroin decreased about 32%, but the number of deaths related to prescription opioids remained the same. As the audience may have different levels of experience, I thought it would be helpful for us to review the drug schedules provided to us by the Drug Enforcement Agency or the DEA. There are five categories within the schedule, categorizing drugs according to acceptable medical use and the potential for abuse or dependency. Schedule 1 drugs are those that are not accepted for medical use and that possess a high potential for abuse. Examples of drugs in this category include heroin, marijuana, and ecstasy. Schedule II drugs are considered to be dangerous with a high potential of abuse and may cause physical or psychological dependence. Some examples in this category include oxycodone acetaminophen, cocaine, methadone, oxycodone, fentanyl, amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, and methylphenidate hydrochloride. The Schedule III drugs possess a moderate to low potential for creating physical and psychological dependence and includes medications such as acetaminophen with codeine and ketamine. The Schedule IV drugs have a low potential for abuse with a low risk for dependence. And examples for this category include alprazolam, lorazepam, zolpidem, and tramadol. The last category is Schedule V drugs, which have the lowest potential for abuse, and examples include cough preparations that contain codeine in amounts that are less than 200 milligrams, as well as antidiarrheal medications such as diphenoxylate/atropine. For today's podcast, we will be reviewing cases about patients who are starting on opioids and concern of someone who may have opioid use disorder. I will present each case and provide you insight on how I will approach and manage the content for the case. Now let's discuss the first case. Our patient is Mr. Q, who's a 54-year-old male with a known history of nonspecific low back pain and radiculopathy that began two years ago. Imaging, which included a lumbar spine X-ray and an MRI, were done due to a lack of reported improvement in the radiculopathy, but both of these images were negative. He completed a course of physical therapy and he received spinal cortisone injections, but reports the pain did not improve for him. He has been prescribed gabapentin, duloxetine, and hydrocodone acetaminophen. He has continued to work as a contractor as he is the sole financial supporter for his family, but does tell us he is at risk of losing his job due to frequent absences and poor performance. On chart review, we see that he's been requesting early refills of his hydrocodone acetaminophen for the past six months. So first let's review some important terms and definitions you will hear throughout the podcast. Opioid use disorder, or OUD, is defined by DIDEC and all, which is a resource you can find in the references, as chronic use of opioids that causes clinically significant distress or impairment. Worldwide, more than 16 million are affected by OUD with over 2.1 million being in the United States. People who have opioid use disorder experience both addiction and dependence with an increasing desire for opioids, an increased tolerance, and symptoms of withdrawal when the opioid is stopped. Now let's put some context to these terms with definitions to help you, our listeners, with this information. Tolerance is defined as a state of adaptation where exposure to a drug induces changes that result in a diminution of one or more of the drug's effects over time. It is indicated by a need for increasing doses in order for the person to achieve the same effect and occurs with opioids. We can dive further into tolerance if we loop in the FDA's definition of the term in that patients are considered opioid-tolerant if they are taking, for one week or longer, at least one of the following medications. Oral morphine in a dose of 60 mg daily, transdermal fentanyl in a dose of 5 micrograms per hour, oral oxycodone 30 mg daily, oral hydromorphone in a dose of eight milligrams daily, oral oxymorphone in a dose of 25 milligrams daily, or an equal analgesic daily dose of another opioid. It is important to note that tolerance is not indicative of addiction. Our next term is physiological dependence. This is the state of adaptation That is manifested by a drug class specific withdrawal syndrome that can occur with abrupt cessation, rapid dose reduction, decreasing blood level of the drug, and or an administration of an antagonist. Physical and physiological dependence occurs in all patients who are using opioids for a period of time. Again, Let's note that physical and or physiological dependence is not indicative of addiction. It's important that we note addiction is a treatable, chronic medical disease that involves complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences people with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and can often continue despite the harmful consequences. Addiction involving opioid use is considered opioid use disorder. Some additional terms that will be helpful for you includes abuse, misuse, an aberrant drug-related behavior. Abuse is considered any use of an illegal drug or the intentional self-administration of a medication for a non-medical purpose, such as altering one's state of consciousness. For example, someone who may be trying to get high. Misuse is the use of a medication that is used for a medical purpose but is now being used for a purpose other than as directed or indicated, whether willfully or unintentionally, and whether harm results or doesn't result. And lastly, aberrant drug-related behavior, or abbreviated as ADRB, is a behavior outside the boundaries of the agreed-on treatment plan. So we now understand that the risk for developing opioid use disorder is a compilation of factors, including psychosocial, environmental, biological, and genetic. Confirming the diagnosis includes meeting criteria identified by the American Psychiatric Association, DSM-5, whose definition is defined as opioid use, and the repeated occurrence within 12 months of two or more of 11 problems. These 11 problems include 1. Continued use despite worsening physical or psychological health. 2. Continued use leading to social and interpersonal consequences. 3. Decreased social or recreational activities. 4. Difficulty fulfilling professional duties at school or work. 5. Excessive time to obtain opioids or recover from taking them. 6. More taken than intended. 7. The individual has craving. 8. The individual is unable to decrease the amount used. 9. Tolerance. 10, using despite it being physically dangerous settings, and lastly, 11, being withdrawal. If we apply this information to the case, we can see that Mr. Q meets the diagnostic criteria as he has difficulty fulfilling his work duties demonstrated by frequent absences and poor performance and is likely taking more than intended as he is requesting early refills. The next thing we'd wanna do during our visit with Mr. Q is to utilize available screening tools to help us identify any misuse of the opioids. While many of these tools are subjective and dependent upon the authenticity of the patient's responses, they can be helpful when combined with a thorough history and physical examination. Examples of available tools include CALM, or Current Opioid Misuse Measure. The CALM tool is a validated brief assessment completed by the patient that helps monitor aberrant behaviors among patients who are on chronic opioid therapy. This focuses on signs and symptoms of intoxication, emotional volatility, evidence of poor response to the medications, addiction, healthcare use patterns, and problematic behavior. The COM tool is relatively quick to administer as it can be completed in less than 10 minutes. It includes 17 items and it asks patients to focus on the behaviors or thoughts within the past 30 days. A score of nine or higher indicates a positive score. In fact, clinically a score of nine or higher will identify 77% of those who turn out to be high risk. The negative predictive value of the COM is also quite high at 0.95. This means that most people with a negative COM or a score of eight or less are most likely not misusing their opioids. This is one of the more commonly used tools for managing patients on chronic opioid therapy and has demonstrated validation by several high-quality studies. A second tool that's available to us is the Opioid Risk Tool, or abbreviated as ORT. This tool has five questions that are scored according to a range of responses that allows for identification of those patients who may be at low, moderate, or high risk for aberrant drug-related behaviors. While the ORT is frequently used, we should note that it lacks evidence to support its effectiveness over the other tools, especially since there is a lack of research to compare these tools to each other. Studies show that the ORT tool has varying sensitivity that ranges from as low as 18% to as high as 75%, and a specificity range that occurs between 54% to 88%. A third tool that we can use as well is the Patient Medication Questionnaire, or abbreviated as PMQ. This tool is appropriate to use to identify aberrant drug-related behaviors with patients who are already taking opioids for pain. It has 26 questions that can score anywhere from zero to 104 with a score that is less than 25 being considered low risk, one that is between 25 to 30, indicating use that is problematic, and a score over 30, indicating that close monitoring should be enacted with consideration to wean the patient off the opioids. Unfortunately. Validation studies have focused on a reduced question PMQ, which has varying sensitivity and specificity, ranging from 36% to 74% and 78% to 93% respectively. The last tool we're reviewing is the Screener and Opioid Assessment for Patients with Pain Revised. Or abbreviated as SOAPP-R. This tool has 24 questions and is a revised version of the original SOAP tool. Similar to the first tools we discussed, the SOAPP-R is a screening tool to be used prior to the introduction of chronic opioids. Scores can range from 0 to 96 with a score of 18 or more indicating the patient is at high risk for misuse. Studies have found that the SOAP-R tool has a sensitivity between 41% and 79% and a specificity between 50% and 71%. An additional tool I would use would be to access my Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, or abbreviated as PDMP. PDMP. As a reminder, this is a program that was instituted to help identify any prescription misuse. It's an electronic database of information that is populated by pharmacy reports on the patient, the prescription dose, the dispensing count, the date of dispensing, and the prescriber. Use of this program can vary by state and ranges from voluntary to mandated use. Nearly all states do have this program, with the last state just about to launch their database. So let's go back to our case study and Mr. Q. We've identified qualifying characteristics that meet the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder. Let's say we've chosen to complete the COM tool, or the current opioid misuse measure, and he scored a score of 16 which indicates aberrant drug-related behaviors have occurred. We accessed our prescription drug monitoring program and do not see that he has filled any additional prescriptions from other providers. We do a review of outside notes and we see that he's been to the emergency department twice for low back pain and one urgent care visit for the same reason but none of which resulted in an additional prescription for opioids being dispensed. So what do we want to do next? Looking at this information, we can recognize that Mr. Q has opioid use disorder based on the qualifying characteristics. As a provider, this can be a difficult conversation to have with the patient especially one that we may have a deep-rooted rapport and relationship with. Whenever I have had to have this conversation with my patients, I will identify from the beginning that I need to talk to them about something and that it's likely going to be uncomfortable for both of us. My conversation with my patient or with our case study might go like this. Mr. Q I have to be honest with you that I'm concerned about your opioid use. When we initially discussed the use of opioids to manage your chronic back pain, we reviewed the potential things that could develop like tolerance and dependence. I have reviewed your chart for refill requests as well as outside visits and I see that you have been asking for early refills as well as sought care from other providers for your back pain. As you recall, Part of your Controlled Substance Treatment Agreement lists that you will only receive treatment from me unless I refer you to a specialist. Now, today you're sharing with me that you're having trouble at work because of frequent absences and performance. I would really like to hear from you what your thoughts are on your use of your pain medication, your work, and your back pain. This will help to get the conversation going. And to be honest, I've had it go in both of these directions. One, where with open discussion and rapport, my patient is able to see and understand the current situation and the risks associated with their behaviors. Or two, I've had patients become angry and defiant and they do not want to accept the conversation or the identification of their behavior. As providers, We have to be ready for both of these instances to occur, but please remember, you do not have to accept patient behavior that is aggressive or threatening. You have the right to secure your safety and end those visits with a plan to readdress when the patient has had time to calm down. In an effort to address the opioid epidemic, the mainstreaming addiction treatment or abbreviated MAT act has expanded availability of treatment through the elimination of the data waiver or x waiver program this change went into effect as of December 2022 and it allows all providers who are registered with the DEA to prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder if it is permitted by applicable state laws Now let's quickly review buprenorphine, as this may be a new medication that you're not familiar with. It is approved by the FDA for opioid use disorder, and it is an opioid partial agonist that can help diminish effects of physical dependency through control of withdrawal symptoms and cravings. It has a lower potential for misuse, but can still produce euphoria, or respiratory depression when used in low to moderate doses. Due to this, it is available with naloxone, which can decrease the risk of diversion and misuse with the medication. It comes in available forms such as sublingual tablet or film, a buccal film, and also an extended release injection. In order for the patient to begin treatment with buprenorphine, the patient has to refrain from use of opioids for 12 to 24 hours and be in the early stages of withdrawal. It's important to note if they are not in this stage, there is the risk of an acute withdrawal occurring. It's also important that patient education include avoidance of all illegal drugs, alcohol, sedatives and tranquilizers due to the risk of respiratory depression leading to an overdose or death. There is no defined time frame for how long the patient should be on buprenorphine, although it is recommended that they stay on the medication for a minimum of 12 months. Treatment should be tailored to your individual patient And it's quite possible that it may need to be prescribed indefinitely. SAMHSA, or abbreviation SAMHSA, which stands for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, provides a very helpful quick start guide for clinicians who are wishing to begin buprenorphine, and it includes everything from the basic facts to a provider checklist, to diversion, and also misuse. It provides a great detailed summary of dosing and recommendations for day one, day two, and scheduled maintenance therapy with buprenorphine. So now that we've reviewed a lot of information, let's go back to Mr. Q. Let's say he had been receptive to the conversation and he accepted that he had opioid use disorder. What I would first do is identify when he last had any opioids. For this, we can use the Clinical Opioid Withdrawal Scale, or what is abbreviated as COWS for short, and this will help us to determine if he is experiencing withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal syndrome May include symptoms such as stomach cramps, diarrhea, rhinorrhea, sweating, elevated heart rate, increased blood pressure, irritability, dysphoria, hyperalgesia, and insomnia. Cows as a tool provide scores for 11 withdrawal symptoms such as pulse rate, sweating, and restlessness. But this is not an inclusive list. The total score on cows categorizes the level of withdrawal that the patient may be experiencing, ranging from a score of 5 to 12 for mild, 13 to 24 for moderate, 25 to 36 for moderately severe, and 36 or more indicating severe withdrawal. If he was in the window of 12 to 24 hours from his last opioid use and in the early stages of withdrawal, as indicated by a cow score more than 12, then I could start Mr. Q on treatment with buprenorphine naloxone at a low dose of 2 milligrams for buprenorphine and 0.5 milligrams for naloxone in a sublingual format. In the office closely following the SAMHSA induction guide. The induction phase for buprenorphine can last up to seven days while the maintenance phase is achieved once there's a marked reduction in the patient's cravings, opioid misuse is diminished or absent, and there are no further withdrawal symptoms occurring. Despite the introduction of the buprenorphine, Mr. Q may still experience some withdrawal symptoms during his induction phase, and it's important that we're supporting him with treatment. For anxiety, we could prescribe him clonidine, and for any GI complaints such as diarrhea, nausea, or vomiting, we could prescribe loperamide for him. We wanna make sure that we're closely monitoring him and following the guidance of the SAMHSA Quick Start Guide. Additionally, we would wanna provide Mr. Q with a prescription for naloxone as the risk of death is the highest in the first four weeks of treatment, as well as the first four weeks following completion of treatment. It's also important that he receive thorough patient education to make sure he understands that he has to avoid all illegal drugs, alcohol, sedatives, and tranquilizers while he's taking this medication due to the risk of respiratory depression that could lead to overdose or death. While Mr. Q is with me, I would also obtain a basic set of labs inclusive of CBC a complete metabolic panel, HIV, hepatitis A, B, and C, and a urine drug test to make sure there were no other substances in his system. I also want to make sure that I'm connecting him with available community resources, as well as my social worker, to ensure we have provided him every tool to make him successful and safe. Effective treatment for opioid use disorder should incorporate a cognitive behavioral approach, and we should refer him to, as well as encourage him, to participate in self-help groups such as Narcotics Anonymous. I would also refer him for cognitive behavioral therapy to support his treatment in combination with medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. He would require close monitoring with this medication including monthly urine drug screening and regular checks of the PMDP to ensure he's not receiving opioids from an outside source. Now, it's important to recognize you may not be comfortable to provide buprenorphine treatment, depending upon your experience thus far in primary care. If this is the case, or if you felt he would benefit from methadone treatment instead, then you would want to refer Mr. Q to a treatment program. Our next case will review the initiation of an opioid prescription for chronic non-cancer pain. Our patient is Mr. V who is 68 years old and has severe osteoarthritis of the left knee but cannot be approved for surgery until he has lost 40 pounds. He has been seeing you and his orthopedist regularly for the last few years because the pain has been worsening. Unfortunately, with the worsening pain, his mobility has also decreased and he's now gained 30 pounds, which is compounding his knee pain. He has completed two courses of physical therapy and has been receiving cortisone injections every four months for the past two years. The injections just don't seem to be lasting as long as they used to, so he's now also been using ice, a knee brace, and ibuprofen around the clock, but his pain level continues to remain at an 8 out of 10. While he has been resistant to opioid use in the past due to fear of addiction and side effects, he is hoping you'll prescribe him something for the pain so he can try to lose the weight and have his surgery as he feels with some pain control he could initiate a walking regimen with his wife. Now this sounds like a common presentation for patients who are dealing with osteoarthritis of the knee but often can't have the surgery they need because of their weight. There are many non-pharmacological treatments that can be tried for chronic pain such as what Mr. V is experiencing. Some of these treatments include massage or myofascial release, ultrasound, regular exercise regimen like walking or aquatics, yoga, and cognitive behavioral therapy. In this case, we do know that Mr. V has been dealing with osteoarthritis for several years and that he has attempted these conservative and non-opioid measures with some relief but the pain has gradually worsened, and these measures are no longer effective. While it seems reasonable to initiate chronic opioid treatment, it is not a decision to be made lightly, and we must consider the potential risks and side effects, including addiction, dependence, tolerance, abuse, overdose, sedation, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, and constipation. As a reminder, Opioids should not routinely be used for chronic pain, given the known risks, and because data shows only minimal benefits occur over placebo. Opioids should only be initiated for the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain when the following hold true. One, an alternative lower-risk therapy has not provided sufficient pain relief or cannot be used, such as contraindications to non-opioid analgesics, and two, pain is adversely affecting a patient's function and or quality of their life, and three, when the potential benefits of opioid therapy outweigh potential harms, and lastly, four, after discussion with the patient of all risk, benefits and alternatives to opioid therapy has occurred. Now let's review Mr. V's history and evaluate him for any opioid use disorder risk. A review of his past medical history reveals that he has hypertension and dyslipidemia. He is a past smoker quitting five years ago and has a 15 pack year history. He admits to drinking one beer on the weekend he denies use of any illicit drugs. You complete the Screener and Opioid Assessment for Patients with Pain or SOAP-R to identify any concerns, and he has a score of 2, placing him at low risk. You review your organization's controlled substance treatment agreement with him and thoroughly review risks for substance use disorder and opioid use disorder, as well as the risk of overdose he agrees to all components of the agreement, and he provides you a urine sample for a urine drug test. As long as he remains low risk for OUD, we can continue to check his urine drug testing twice a year with the explanation that there may be an out-of-pocket cost to him and that he can verify this with his insurance company. When we're initiating pain medication, we want to start low with the mildest medication as the goal is to have the lowest effective dose and to ideally use the shortest period of time to prevent any risks. Here the goal will be to provide pain management to allow Mr. V the opportunity to increase his exercise efforts to lose weight so that he can have his surgery. In this scenario I would follow the American College of Rheumatology guidelines and prescribe him Tramadol, 50 milligrams, every four to six hours as needed for pain. Additionally, I would advise the use of diclofenac gel 1%, applying four grams topically to the knee up to four times per day with a maximum of 16 grams per joint per day. I'd include the discussion that the goal of treatment is to obtain a level of pain control that is low, ranging between a score of 1 to 3 out of 10, and one which allows him to be active and maintaining function. Patient education would include and stress not to combine this medication with alcohol or marijuana use due to the risk of overdose and that he needs to be careful when driving or using any heavy machinery due to the risk of sedation. Additionally, I would either provide him a prescription for intranasal naloxone or advise him to purchase it over-the-counter, which went into effect in 2023. And I would make sure that I provide thorough patient and caregiver education On the symptoms of overdose and the use of the naloxone, as well as the importance of having this medication readily available at all times, with examples as keeping it in his wife's purse, having it in his pocket, or maybe keeping it in his vehicle. Naloxone is prescribed to patients that are on opioids and buprenorphine treatment to serve as an opioid receptor antagonist, that can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose, including the respiratory depression that can be associated with opioid use. Naloxone is available in two forms, a nasal spray or injectable, and it can be administered by anyone without need for medical training. It is a quick acting medication and it can restore normal breathing within two to three minutes of administration. But it's important to note it may require more than one dose if stronger opioids have been taken, such as fentanyl. It's also important to know that everyone around the patient be aware of how to use the naloxone and there are several resources available within the CDC that can help provide guidance on its use. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes to also review the Controlled Substance Treatment Agreement or Patient-Provider Agreement, which is referred to as the PPA. Many organizations will have their own version of the PPA to use, but let's briefly review the commonly included information. PPAs are considered to be formal written agreements between the provider and the patient, and it details each person's responsibility. It generally details that there will be one prescribing provider, and that is the one with whom the agreement is made, and one pharmacy that will be used to fill the prescription. Specific details explain expectations and requirements for both parties such as refill requests, drug testing, proper drug storage, pill counts, and behaviors or activities that may null the agreement. So let's go back to Mr. V, who returns for follow-up four weeks later, and he states he's been taking one tablet of his tramadol every six hours with the diclofenac gel, and his pain is averaging between 5 to 6 out of 10. He's walking about 15 minutes per day, but the pain seems to worsen, so he has to stop. So what are we going to do next? This is something that's commonly seen with patients who have concern about opioid use. For Mr. V, I'd recommend that he increase his dose to two tablets every six hours and that he return for reevaluation in three to four weeks. I'd also consider my other resources to help him this would be a good case to refer to nutrition for help with weight loss so he can maximize his efforts. Now let's fast forward six months. We saw Mr. V three weeks after the increase in the medication and he had reported that his pain level was a three to four out of 10 with the two tablets every six hours. And he was able to increase his walking to 30 minutes each day. He had met with nutrition, and he continues to see them once a month to stay on track. And he has successfully lost 20 pounds so far. Today, he is reporting a flare of his knee pain following an accidental fall down the stairs. On exam, he has soft tissue swelling, as well as an infusion and significant bruising. We find that his flexion has decreased to 90 degrees and his extension is 10 degrees. His pain level is back to an 8 out of 10 and he's had to stop his walking regimen. So what do we do now? In this situation, I'd recommend that he continue his current tramadol treatment, that he stop the diclofenac gel and he add ibuprofen 400 to 600 milligrams three times a day. Additionally, I'd recommend icing and resting to allow the swelling to decrease. Given that it's a recent injury, he may also benefit from a new referral to physical therapy, but I'd wait a week or so to allow his acute pain to resolve a little bit. This is also a good example of a follow-up appointment that could be done by phone or telehealth, which I would set up for him in seven to 10 days. If things are improving, I'd then have him continue his treatment with the ibuprofen for another one to two weeks until the swelling has resolved and he's back to baseline. But if he's telling me he's not improving, at that point, I would refer him to physical therapy as well as orthopedics because it's possible a potential cortisone injection could help to reduce his inflammation and swelling. So as we near the end of the podcast, I want to review a couple of key takeaways with you. One, the elimination of the data waiver program has provided the opportunity for providers to prescribe life-saving medications such as buprenorphine for our patients who have opioid use disorder. Two, The introduction of naloxone as an over-the-counter medication provides an additional layer to help save lives, as now anyone can purchase this medication and have it readily available if they have a loved one who is using prescribed or non-prescribed opioids. So that brings us to the end of our session. Thank you so much for joining me for this case study review on management of controlled substances and substance use disorders.